Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and go and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Tyler. Appreciate that. Good morning, Redemption. <laughs> Trying to get... No, that goes over here. There we go. Okay. Got it right. Always good to have an awkward moment on Easter morning. That's nice. Good to see you guys. Uh, I just want to remind you, uh, thank you so much for coming to the 730 Church. Um, I, I've read in several places some of the most important historical documents of the church, that those who show up on Easter morning at 730 have a special place in heaven. So you guys are in, in good shape. So we are glad that you are here. And I want to acknowledge that there's probably uh, going to be a, a, an especially high number of new people here today. Um, and, and what we've been doing for the, well, since the beginning of the year is we've been walking through the biblical book of Acts. It's, it's the book in the New Testament that gives a, a, an historical account of the new church starting with the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. And so I apologize if you feel like you're kind of walking in in the middle of a movie. It's going to feel like that a little bit, but I can assure you you're going to get up to speed very quickly. So as the story goes, Jesus ministered for three years. He got into a lot of trouble with the professional religious people of his day. Uh, they decided, along with um, uh, manipulating the Roman government, that they needed to crucify him, which they did. That crucifixion is where we find uh, forgiveness of our sins. And then three days later, just as Jesus predicted, he busted out of the tomb and he rose again. And that's what we celebrate today is Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And, and then he appears to his, his uh, disciples and his apostles and to uh, 500 other people. Uh, he hangs around for about 40 days. He tells them, you need to wait a little while, and then he ascends to heaven. And he says, you are going to take my message to Jerusalem and Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's what the book of Acts is about, is about the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ being carried to uh, not just Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts, where we get started today, which is the beginning of chapter 9, as Tyler just wrote, read for us, uh, really from here on out, with the exception of a couple of, of chapters, the book of Acts follows this guy, Saul, pretty much the rest of the way. Many of you probably know Saul as Paul. And so we need to make sure that you understand that Saul and the Apostle Paul are really the same people. Saul was an ethnic Jew... And he was a wonderful, smart, uh, in his mind, good, God-seeking, uh, religious Jew. He was one of the best ever. Um, and, and, and so his name in the Hebrew was Saul, 
But when he became the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, eventually he took on his, his Greek name, his Gentile name, which was Paul. And you'll see that shift in chapter 13 when we get there. But I will tell you that the conversion of Saul, which we see today, is one of the most unlikely, if not the most unlikely, conversions in the history of humankind. This guy, although he was a religious professional, he had a heart that was absolutely hard as stone. And it took the, res the resurrected Jesus, the raised Jesus, knocking him down and humbling him. He, he didn't receive the message from anybody else but from the raised Jesus. And it took that to be able to help him understand who uh, Jesus is. And like I said, he, he, was, he was a well-known Jew. He was still a fairly young man at this time, but already his, his reputation preceded him in more, than, in more than one way. He was known as somebody who persecuted the Christians. He did not like what was going on, but he was also known as the star student of Gamaliel, who was probably the greatest rabbi who ever lived, and he was smarter than his teacher. I, I suppose you could say it like this. He was kind of the, the Billy Graham of, of his day in Judaism. He was the Rudy Giuliani of mayors. He was the LeBron James of basketball. He was the Patrick Kane of hockey. He was the Jim Gaffigan of stand-up comedians. He was the Chuck Norris of pretty much everything. That's who, that's who he was. And, and he genuinely, genuinely hated the idea of the, of the empty tune, was determined to not only disprove that, but to, but to um, persecute anybody who believed in it. He was determined to end this Jesus movement. He could not stand Christians, and he detests Jesus. But the irony is that he's confronted by the resurrected Christ, and then he is comforted by Christians in the wake of that. And so he's transformed into the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament, in the Bible. He wrote nearly a third of the New Testament. And here's the irony. He was never at any time seeking God. He was not seeking God. He was not seeking truth. In fact, if you were to ask Saul prior to his conversion, he would tell you he was God's grand guy. He was the man. He, he had already found God, and he was doing God's good work by going in and dragging out these Christians. But in fact, he finds himself opposing God, and Jesus needs to come and talk to him. And Jesus saved him. Jesus went to this guy, a heart as hard as stone, somebody who's persecuting Jesus' people and thereby persecuting Jesus, and he saves him. So here's the big idea today. Power is in the resurrection of Jesus. There's incredible power in the resurrection of Jesus. So let's, let's just get into it. We're going we're gonna to read 19 verses this morning, talk about them a little bit, and then give you, we're going to have one takeaway today. And it's going to have to do with the resurrection. So here's verses 1 and 2. But Saul, st Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of, at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So there's a but in verse 1. That's interesting. There's, there's a contrast that Luke is trying to show. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you realize that in chapter 8, there is this wonderful, uh, this wonderful chapter about the church prevailing, the church going out from Jerusalem. It's going out into all of Judea and into Samaria and even into Gaza, and it's prevailing, and it follows the, the work of really pretty much one guy, Philip, a little bit of, of Peter, 
But there's just great, and Philip evangelizes many in Samaria, and then he talks specifically, uh, the last part of chapter 8, to the Ethiopian eunuch, and it is wonderful, but there is a contrast here. Luke says, but Saul is still breathing murderous threats. In other words, Saul is still persecuting the church. This is the reason the church started to go out. It's interesting that it took persecution to get the church to go out. And, and there was no formal church program of evangelism. Have you noticed that? You know, the modern church today, uh, we, we want to have a program for evangelism, and we want to make sure it's, it's done so that we're comfortable doing it. But the original evangelism program in the church was not any sort of program, and it was rooted in the fact that they were being persecuted. I, I think that's an interesting contrast to look at. And so Saul was the leader of this church persecution. He was there at, at the execution of Stephen in chapter 7, giving his approval. So what does the persecution mean? In their context, it was they were unjustly arresting people and putting them in jail and even unjustly executing people. And you look at verse 2, it says that he was going to arrest people who were seen as part of the way. The reason it's described there. That way, Christianity, the church, is because at that time, Christianity was still seen as merely another sect of Judaism. There were many sects of Judaism that had many different teachings. This was the sect that said, we have found the, the Messiah, or really, the Messiah has found us. And so they were, just, they were still part of the synagogue and the temple, but they were a part that was causing a lot of problems for the professional religious people. So they're seen as a sect still of Judaism. They're the people of the way. And he's going to go all the way up to Damascus from Jerusalem to drag back these Christians who are supposedly breaking the Jewish law. That's 130 miles away. And that's before there was any form of, of, of helpful transportation. He had to walk this. It was a seven-day journey walking, you know, about 20 miles every single day. And these letters that Paul obtained from the Jerusalem ruling council, from the professional religious people, were literally letters of extradition that gave him the right, uh, under the guise of the Roman government and the Jewish religious leaders, to walk into anybody's home, ask if you're a follower of Jesus, and drag you back to Jerusalem for a trial where there was already a verdict and you were going to either be executed or have to spend time. Can you even imagine? So look what happens. He's on his way to do God's work, verses 3 through 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here's Luke's, Luke's intention in this narrative. He wants to make sure that the people reading the narrative realize that this is all about and specifically about Saul and his conversion, and, but that everybody else who was there around Saul knew something was happening, but they didn't get all the same details that Saul got. They got just enough of, a, of the details to know that something major had happened, and they were willing and able to testify that something magnificent had happened, but they weren't exactly sure what it was until it all played out. In verse 4, Jesus asks an interesting question. Why are you persecuting 
me. There are huge implications to that. Saul's probably going, I'm not persecuting you, just the people who follow you, just the people who believe your goofy story. Those are the, and Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're persecuting the people of God, you are persecuting me. You're persecuting God. You're opposing God. You're coming after God. In verse 5, it's interesting how Saul immediately calls him Lord. That's no small detail. Saul recognizes there is no question from the very beginning that he is encountering a superior being, which must have been very difficult for Saul to understand because in every room that Saul was ever in in his entire life up until now, Saul was really the superior being. He walked in with a reputation. He walked in with the education. He walked in with all the degrees and the accoutrement, everything. He was the superior, and now he recognizes Saul is no longer special. This might be the first time in his life that he realizes, I'm not so special. Listen, I know that Easter Sunday morning is probably not the best time to go after your self-esteem, but you and I really aren't special. We need to understand that. We're not that special. We are loved, yes, but we're not special. Here you go. They are not going to be singing the Barney song to us in either heaven or hell, wherever we end up. That's not the song that they're going to be singing to us. Who is special? Jesus. Jesus is special. He's holy. He's God. There's only one person like Jesus. It's Jesus. And the reason this is important to recognize is because that helps us understand who we are in comparison to a holy and perfect God, which helps us to realize exactly how essential Jesus is for our life. This is a very important decision that we have to make, whether or not we are going to follow Jesus. And his resurrection is the event, the miracle, that God uses to prove Jesus' divinity and that he is the Messiah And then you look at those last four verses of that paragraph. It's interesting. There's an immediate call on Saul's life. Jesus doesn't just appear to Saul, rebuke Saul, and then say, see ya. And Saul's not being called, here you go, Saul's not being called to leave Judaism so much as he is being called to the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Jews had been looking forward to for centuries. He's the fulfillment of what Isaiah had written about 700 years earlier. He's the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. God says in Genesis chapter 3, already I have the understanding of how I'm going to save my people. It's going to be through the good news of my Messiah. Saul and the rest of the professional religious Jewish people had been waiting for this guy, Jesus, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and so he's being called to follow that. And of course, Paul's blindness is very humbling. Paul needed to be, all of us need to be humbled before we can really accept the fact that Jesus is is the Christ. Paul's blindness is humbling. Paul had spent his entire life doing everything under his power. He's the guy that was going and doing the self-motivation conferences and telling you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and all that other stuff. But now he has shown his weakness. And Paul, Saul, later on in the New Testament, in about the year 61, when he writes 
his letter to the church at Philippi, he acknowledges this. He acknowledges this. Listen to what he writes. He says to the church at Philippi, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those are people who are carrying around the Mosaic law saying the only way you can be saved is by you living up to this Mosaic law, which Paul now knows is a complete impossibility for anybody to do. Only Jesus was able to do that. So he says, watch out for those people who tell you, here's a moral code that you have to fulfill in order to be seen worthy before God. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's Paul, who had every reason to put confidence in the flesh, saying, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks they can be saved by their own good works, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I throw all of that away. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, literally as dung. That's what the word means there. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He, he's, he's blind as a sim- symbol of his spiritual blindness, which is about to be removed now to realize that he can't do it. He needs Jesus. And understand his blindness and his fasting are not punishments, but rather indications of the intensity of his encounter with Jesus. And here's how... This account of his conversion moves forward. It doesn't necessarily end here, but we get the rest of the story in terms of of the immediate movement. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, a disciple of Jesus. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go into the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, not, not, not that Judas, different Judas, very common name back then. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, listen to this. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off of his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. 
Now, modern-day Damascus, still there, big city. It stands, mostly stands on top of the ancient Damascus ruins. But very interesting, the street called Straight is still the original street from, from this story 2,000 years ago. It's still, there's, we, we should have a picture of it. It's, it's still, it is known as the longest continuously used street in the history of the world, this street called Straight. And verses 10 through 12, I think, are interesting because it shows us that God is not just working on Saul, but he's arranging other things as well. He's also helping Ananias see what his part, what his role in all of this is. Remember, you and I, we, we get so nervous. I get so nervous. And the reason is because we don't see the, the entire picture. We don't see God moving behind the scenes. We don't see what God is doing elsewhere. We don't see all the backstories. I'm a big backstory guy. I, I want to know all the backstories, but we can't. God knows all the backstories. He's arranging everything. Paul was probably wondering, am I ever going to see again? Am I ever going to have any friends again? And God was already at work arranging those things for Paul, even though he was unsure of that. In verses 13 and 14, I mean, Ananias is saying, you want me to do what? You know about this guy Saul, right? He's killing people who follow Jesus, Okay. You can't tell me that Saul didn't have a nasty reputation. And understand, he had this nasty reputation in a day without digital communication, without the internet, and without the social media. That's how powerful his reputation was. In verses 15 and 16, there is God's call on Saul's life. Now, I'm not saying that this is prescriptive for everybody's call, uh, God, everybody who has a call of God on their life. But it is interesting that in the Bible, the most important human being in the New Testament, Paul, the call on his life is to take the good news of redemption and salvation to Gentiles, people that he does not like, people that he sees as his enemy, people that he despises, people that he sees as second-class citizens. God says, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to be my apostle to your enemies. And, oh, by the way, here's the second part of your call. You're going to suffer for it. That's his call. Be nice to your enemies and suffer for it. And then verses 17 through 19, the scales falling off his eyes. As I said, this was symbolic of Saul's spiritual blindness being removed. And just like the eunuch in, in, in chapter 8, there was no he hesitation and no embarrassment about being baptized. He went right over and got dunked. And Ananias placing his hands on, on, on Saul was probably a little scary for Ananias. Even though he was told and he was assured by God, he's probably walking over there going, hmm. Okay, but then it's also a very tender moment. It expressed a genuine recognition and acceptance of God's work in Saul's life. So here's the takeaway. It's the power of the resurrection. You think about Peter, the Apostle Peter, another major player in the New Testament. I, I mean, what a goofball during the Gospels, right? And then the resurrection happens, and he becomes Peter. How about Stephen? Stephen got to preach... He was one and done. He preached one time, was executed. That's the power of the resurrection. What, to get killed? No, that you're willing to stand up and take whatever God has for you in the midst of this persecution and this oppression. You look at Saul, who becomes Paul. There's a guy, some of you have heard of this guy. Those of you who haven't, I want to tell you about him. There's a guy named John Newton. 
His heart was just as hard as Paul's. If ever there was somebody else with a heart as hard as Paul's, it was John Newton. He was born in 1725. He, he was an English fellow. I guess you'd call him a bloke. His, his mother died when he was seven, but his mother used to read him scripture until she died when he was seven, but then he was raised by his father, who by all accounts was an extraordinarily harsh man. And by the time he was 11 years old, he began his career as a hand on ships, on seagoing ships. He lost his first two jobs because of insubordination. And so they, and then he decided to go into the Royal Navy. <laughs> of course, he rebelled against their discipline. He deserted. He was captured. He was flogged. He was put into irons. Eventually, the Navy released him, and, and he, and he uh, caught on with a slave ship. So he got to work in the slave trade. He was... He was sailing to Africa. They were getting slaves. They were bringing them back to England, and he was a part of that. But he remained arrogant and insubordinate. He lived a life of total moral abandon. Later on, he wrote this. I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my purpose to tempt and seduce others. And perhaps nowhere was his darkness and wicked nature expressed more than as a slave trader. He was cruel. He was insolent. He was harsh. He was unrelenting. And he developed a, re, a, a reputation that no one would be proud of, but he seemed to revel in it. He liked it. Finally, he, he took up with a, a Liverpool slave ship called the Greyhound. And in, in, eight, in 1747, it was, it was on its way back from a trip to Africa. They had slaves with them, and they encountered a major storm where they all thought that they were going to die in the storm. And at that moment, he, he began to remember his mother's Bible readings to him as a, as a small child, and he called upon Jesus to save him. And yeah, it was a foxhole conversion. If you're not familiar with that term, you can Google it later. Let me finish first. But he also, even though he had this foxhole conversion, he remained for years, in his own words, quote, not fully converted. And so he stayed in the slave trade business. But by his own testimony, as he began to study and learn more about the resurrection of Christ about the resurrection of Christ, he began to see that in juxtaposition to the slave trade, and he began to understand just how evil the slave trade was. So in 1755, he left his slave jobs for an office job, and he began to study, and he studied under the influence of William Cowper, George Whitfield, and the Wesleys. Those are, those are big names in church history. He studied with those guys, and in 1764, he became a pastor, and, and, and he worked tirelessly to end the slave trade. In England. He eventually joined up with William Wilberforce and was central in helping to end the slave trade in England. In 1787, some of his opponents had kind of had it with him, and in an effort to get him to get off of the whole idea of ending the slave trade, they came to him and suggested that he retired. And here's his reply I cannot stop. What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? The resurrected Christ still has work for me. Of course, he's the one who wrote Amazing Grace. He's the author of Amazing Grace, the greatest hymn probably ever written. And that, that hymn has perfect theology. Let me just give you the first verse. Perfect theology. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch, not a soul, a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That word grace... He puts that right up front, amazing grace, because he knows the definition of it is unmerited favor. He didn't merit any favor from Jesus, yet Jesus saved him. 
He didn't deserve it. He didn't count himself worthy. And yet he was saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was delivered from eternal death. And yeah, he calls himself a wretch. And and I want you to understand, he did not have a low self-esteem problem. He just knew what reality was. As he began to see the resurrected Christ and compare himself to the resurrected Christ, reality began to set in. And he said, I am a wretch compared to the resurrected Jesus. Maybe not compared to other slave traders, but the standard is Jesus and his holiness. So I am a wretch. You know, there's people today who will change the words of that song to soul, who saved a soul like me in an effort to save everybody's crumbling self-esteem. Let me tell you something. It's just not going to work when you stand before a holy God. All this Barney stuff's going to go right out the door, and you're going to realize who he is, and you're going to be thankful that we know him. He was lost. He he was lost in arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency. He was lost in cruelty, but he was found. And understand, Jesus found Newton. Newton understood this. We think we're looking and we're seeking, but Jesus is the one who seeks us. He is the truer and better seeker than any of us are. He's described as the hound of heaven. He will not give up. He comes after us. He comes for us. He was blind. He had an inability to see the truth. And he wasn't able to see it until God changed his mind and his heart. He transformed John by the power of his resurrection and he could finally see. That is good news. The resurrection. The gospel. The good news of Jesus. The resurrection turns death into life. It turns darkness into light. It turns blindness into sight. That's amazing grace. We work with a lot of prisoners in the, in the prison system here in Arizona. There's one that some of us have known for uh, a number of years, I think 15 or 16 years. Uh, a friend of mine, he's here this morning, Bob, wrote him one time and said, Hey, uh, Joe, I'm just curious. What do you think? Which was more important, the birth of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. And Joe wrote back and he said, I think they're both equally important and here's why. At the birth of Jesus, the father wrote a check to pay for all the sin of humanity and that check cleared the bank at the resurrection. It's a great way to look at it. You think about Saul, Stephen, Peter, John Newton, you and me. That check that was written was cleared for us by Jesus at the resurrection. A.W. Tozer, what a wonderful quote. He says this of Jesus. If man had his way, the plan of redemption would be an endless and bloody conflict. In reality, salvation was bought not by Jesus' fist, but by his nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ our Lord surrendered in order that he might win. He destroyed his enemies by dying for them and conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. That's why we celebrate today and every day. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for, we just thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection. God, we pray every single day that you would preach the gospel to us, that we would preach it to ourselves, that we would know the power of your resurrection. 
power to live for today, power for eternal life forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have our time.